Let's take our Bible, turn over the book of Acts chapter 1. We're going to use this just to kick things off, then we'll move along. Again, we're dealing with the mission of the church on Wednesday night, and we're going to note, I guess if you would, the pastor's role in the master plan. And then it kind of, we're going to see that that role that the, kind of the first pastor of the church was given was passed on to others to also continue with. And so we're going to begin in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and then we're just going to kind of jump on into some things here tonight. Trust it'll be a help and encouragement to you. I know it always inspires me to consider what our goal, our purpose, our job is, helps me to stay focused, and I know uh, you'll, I trust, glean as well from it. Okay? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Who will read that for me up here on the front row when he fellows? Would you stand and read that loudly, would you please? Of course, we have this great passage in the Word of God. It outlines our purpose, our, our reason for existing as a church. We're to go out into the world to reach the world with the gospel. Well, that job can't be accomplished if it would stop with just that first generation. There's a number of generations that are required or needed for that to, to fulfill this great commission. And what we find is that the proper foundation of the next generation begins in the home. It begins in the home. And we talk about the home, we talk about our home, but also we can talk about the church as a home. You know, we often, or at least I will, I'll use it while I'm out knocking doors, I may say something like this. I may say, well, you know, we are convinced that everybody needs at least three homes. One, they need an earthly home. And obviously, you have a home, or at least a roof over your head. Number two, you need a church home. Everybody needs a church home. And number three, you need an eternal home. Well, in this particular case, we have the home. And um, we realize there's that home that we live in. And, uh, you know, husband, wife, family. Uh, We have a building or a house that we live in and puts a roof over our head. But also there's a church home that we also have. And the proper foundation of the next generation begins in the home. Now, there's an old saying that seems to have been forgotten, it seems, in this generation. It goes like this. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And we're going to note that the secret to true success in the local church is who is rocking the cradle. Who's really rocking the cradle? It's true in the world. As we look at our homes, we deal in the secular world. I mean, some of the greatest men in the world, some of the greatest women in the world have been rocked by a mom or a a person that had strong strong, uh, convictions, had strong moral stamina. I mean, were, were good, godly character, had good, godly character. And so it's so important that in the church as well, that there are those that are rocking the cradle. Now, when a person comes to Christ, they're spoken of as being born again. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 3, verse 3. John chapter 3, verse 3. Again, in the home, that person rocking the cradle has impacted lives. You ever notice? And even to this day, and again, even with our culture changing, with society being turned upside down, it's still funny to me that when you you look at a football game and somebody's being interviewed, they'll say, Hi, Mom. Isn't that amazing? Now, I know sometimes it's somebody else these days, but it used to be more so than now. But it's, it, even to this day, it seems that, that moms ultimately get that, hey, nobody has a, hi, Dad. There's a, hi, Mom. You know, it's like, you know, 
So it, the rock in the cradle is important. It makes an impact on people. That mom made an impact on them children. And boy, if you've got any kind of mother at all, that mom does indeed make a tremendous impact and influence the lives of those children. And ultimately, is much responsible for how they turn out in the end. And so we're very grateful for moms today. But notice it says in John 3.3, 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In this particular case, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is referring to those that trust and receive Him. They're born again. So if they're born again, it's, it's, He's going to ultimately refer to them as what? Babies, children, infants. So as babies in Christ, the new convert's going to need a tremendous amount of support, going to need a tremendous amount of training then. Just like a little baby would, so would a new convert. They're going to be needy. They're going to be helpless without someone to feed and care for them. And that's what we understand. Now, the foundation and hope of this generation, not last generation, not even the one beyond this, this generation, the very hope, the very foundation for this generation is going to be who's going to be rocking that cradle. Who's going to be caring and taking care of the babies, if you will, not just Physically, not just in a sense of the world is concerned or in the homes of, of uh, in, in actual homes, but in the church house. Because there are babies being born, we trust. Seven of them already in the first two days of our campaign. Seven babies. The question is now, the question is really, who's going to be rocking the cradle? Who's going to take care of them? Who's going to provide for them? Who's going to meet their need? Reaching the next generation begins in this generation. And in order to ensure that the gospel will be spread in the next generation, we must ensure that we are rocking the cradle of our newborn babes. I want you to look, if you would, in John chapter 21 very quickly. John chapter 21, verse 15. Peter is given a command by the Lord Jesus Christ here. And we're going to note this whole passage in just a few moments. But notice just this one verse here, verse 15. Uh, You'll notice in the passage that he uses that phrase, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. When it's all said and done, it seems that the Lord spent some time with Peter. Maybe even a little more so than the others. Because we know it's recorded in the Scriptures. It seems that he spent a little time with him. And it almost would seem that Peter could be called maybe the first pastor. It's almost like he was given some instructions that maybe even more so than the others. And listen, you can believe whatever you want, okay? You can believe in, in elder rules of churches. You can believe that a number of elders rule the church, that everybody has a say in how it works and all that good stuff. Okay, that's fine. But let me tell you something. You, you, you know, anything that's two-headed is a monster. Anything that has more than one head is a monster. And let me tell you something, there needs to be a head. And that's, I believe today that, that Peter was kind of given kind of the... A little bit more kind of, okay, Peter, here's the job. Here's what needs to happen. Make sure it gets done. He said, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. And so Peter kind of steps in there. Now, we're a little afraid to say words like that and things like that. Why? Because we're afraid the Catholic Church will think we're agreeing that Peter was the first pope. That's not what we're saying. I'm not talking about being a pope 
We're not talking about ruling over the whole church and putting our, you know, our, our heel on their neck and saying, you'll do what I say. This is a hierarchy and I'm in control and you'll have to abide by me. And every local church has to submit to this local church. And no, we're not talking about that. But we are saying that potentially Paul, uh, Peter had authority here. The Lord began to give him some authority. Uh, the time had come for Christ to end his earthly ministries, preparing to go back to be with, with God himself in heaven. And so he meets with the disciples. They're out fishing, right? Here they are out fishing. And um, all night they've been seeking to catch fish. But what they catch? Nothing. Not a thing. Nothing ends up in the net. Nothing's on the end of the hook. These are professional fishermen. I mean, just three years earlier, they were catching loads of fish. Now they can't catch a fish at all. I don't think that was coincidence. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. Now, remember, he's already died and he's been buried and now he's risen again. And here they are out fishing. And he shows up and he commands them to let the nets down. Just do it one more time. Fellas, just go ahead and drop them nets in the water again. I know you've caught nothing all night. I know you've labored. I know you've given your best and you've toiled, but drop them one more time. They do so. They obey His command. Up out of the water comes 153 huge fish. They have to drag the nets onto onto the shore. They're just so heavy. The nets breaking, if not, pulling them out. Of the, of the water. I mean, amazingly, 153 fish, big fish, jump right into the net. How's that happen? You say, luck. No. Well, you know, a big school of fish just happened to be swimming by. No. The Lord's going to use this now. He's going to use this to try to help us understand some things. So, anyway, they drag the net onto the shore. After, afterwards, the Lord's feeding these disciples. He's, he's preparing them breakfast. Jesus asked one of the most probing and intriguing questions ever. He looks Peter square in the eye and he says to Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? You know, we may be tempted to think possibly, well, he's talking about the other disciples. I'm not convinced of that. I'm more convinced that possibly, I'm really convinced that he's saying, hey, uh, Simon, Peter, let me ask you something. Do you love me more than you love these fish? What was Peter just doing? He was fishing. What was he called to do? Be a fisher of men, wasn't he? Peter, do you love me more than you love these fish? Because if you love these fish more than you love me, why don't you just go on down now, sell these fish, get back in the business. Otherwise, why don't you get with the program? If you're going to preach, Peter, what are you doing back in a boat? Peter answers, of course. And his answer confirms his love for the Lord Jesus Christ. But it also provokes Christ to issue a commission. Notice if you would again, John 21, you're there already, verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. 
He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Then he saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved, because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. There's a pastoral commission, I believe, being given here. And it's being summed up in a total of three commands that include three words each. And every time Jesus called Peter, he called him by his full name. He asked him concerning his love. And he ultimately, as we know, answered in a way that confirmed that love for the Lord. But notice the command. Feed my lambs. It's been understood by some. And again, I've tried to figure it out. And I don't know all the Greek words and all that stuff. But it seems that in this passage we have lambs. And we know that lambs would be babies. Younger sheep, so to speak. And so we have these little babies. Feed my lambs. One could say, feed my little babies. Feed my children. Then he goes on to say, my sheep. And he says that twice. Now again, I can't say emphatically, but it seems to me that he might be implying, feed my sheep, those that are hurting, those that are in need of help. Or, and then finally, feed those ones that are grown, that are healthy, that are strong. We have three types here of potential people that ultimately every pastor must feed. They must feed the babies. They must feed the hurting, the injured, the weak, the weary. They must feed the full grown that are healthy, faithful, strong. Again, there's little doubt at this point of what Peter's responsibility is at this point. I mean, I mean, very little. And his responsibility even toward the church. I mean, Jesus had looked Peter, as we said already, right in the eye. He, he, he called him by his full name. He said, now listen, Peter. Here it is. Feed my lambs. Peter, feed my sheep. You love me, Peter? Get it done. Get it done. The pastor's responsibility to feed the flock is stated again in the book of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter states it all over. Turn there if you would. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 10. There we read in 1 Peter 5, 1, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, the witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. 
Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Notice in this passage, he clearly extends the responsibility, uh, extends the responsibility of the pastor. He extends it to others. It doesn't stay with him alone. In verse 2, A, feed the flock of God which is among you. Peter's not talking about himself now. He's talking to others and he's saying, you feed the flock which is among you. So he's extending the responsibility of the pastorate, which is to what? Feed the flock. Not only that, but he carefully explains the role of the pastor. In verse 2, the second part of the verse, he goes on to say, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. So notice that again now. He, has, he explains the role. Not only has he extended the responsibility, he's explaining the role now. And he makes it very clear here. Now what I would want you to understand before we continue is that ultimately, so you don't get mixed up about this, you have the same responsibility that I have at a different level. You may not stand before this crowd and proclaim the Word of God as I do, but you're going to find that ultimately you too are to pastor people. Sadly enough, in the church, we have lost sight of that. So we read a passage like this, and we're quick. We love passages like this. Well, good. The pastor, see, he has a job to do. It's his job to train people. It's his job to teach people. It's his job not to lord over the heritage. We like that part, don't we? Because everybody has their own definition of what that means. One person I say, listen, I would prefer that you use this instead of that material. Lording. It's always got to be his way. You know what I mean? The other person, I could say, you know what? I really want you to teach your lesson standing on your head. Yes, sir, I can't wait. That's going to be a blessing, Pastor. I'm so glad God sent you our way. Do you understand what I'm saying? Everybody has their own definition. May I say something? You've got to be careful. You don't lord over the heritage. Oh, yeah. Come on. That's good. Listen, you have no more right to lord over a baby that's in Christ or that you are trying to help train and work with and I have to lord over you as a church. Be careful. See, it may not be the same thing. I understand he's speaking specifically to elders, but when it comes down to it, this commission, this pastor, so to speak, is passed down to the next generation. How? Through those that will ultimately teach and train and raise up babies. And every believer is responsible for that job. Every one of us. He clearly extends the responsibility of the pastor. I know specifically in this passage he's talking to preachers. I know that. I understand that he carefully explains the role of the pastor. But may I say that the characteristics and qualities that he extends to the pastor are also those same ones that you and I ought to embrace as believers dealing with others. And notice he convincingly expresses the reward of the pastor. Man, everything we do for the Lord is worth it. 
Maybe in this life we find it to be difficult. But even so, it's better to live for God in a tough situation than to live without God in a good one. I'm, I'm a, listen, don't you get fed up hearing Christians whine and cry all the time about how rough it is to be a Christian. How tough it is to be saved in these days. How difficult it is to live for Jesus Christ. Doesn't that bother you? we got the biggest God in the world. You're telling me you would rather live without Him? I have heard people say things like, I regret the day I got saved. I'd rather live, live in the world so that I could experience the kind of relationships I want and do the things I want and live the way I want. This living for God's difficult. It's hard. I said, wait till you'd burn forever in hell and then tell me how easy it is. Let me tell you something. We are very blessed and very fortunate. I don't care how tough our life gets. It's better than anybody in this world who's lost without Christ. My goodness, we better get a handle on that. But notice the explicit reward that's expressed here. Notice the personal reward, verse 4. He goes on to say to pastors, and again, he says, Chief shepherd shall appear. When he shall appear, you shall receive a, a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now, I understand this is speaking specifically to pastors, and there is an element, there is a crown for preachers. I know this. But may I say there are other crowns available to each and every one of us who are faithful in the commission that God has given to us. Notice also corporately in verse 10. Notice what happens when the pastor or when the people are faithful in communicating these truths and ultimately raising up and pastoring people the way they need to be pastored. He goes on to say, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Talking to the people now. The people of God. He moves on in the passage and he begins to say, you, if you will remain steadfast, if you will follow through, you will be strong, steadfast. You will be established and perfected and strengthened and settled. That's what the, the, the reward is. As a pastor shares his heart, as he bears his heart, as he gives the word of God out and as he trains and teaches people, the one blessing that he has is to see people grow in Christ. To ultimately become perfected and established and strengthened and settled. Do you know how sad and how horribly disappointing it can be for a pastor when he pours his heart into people and they ultimately turn their back on God? Do you know that you give your life to a ministry, you give your life to people? It's disappointing at times and it can be discouraging if you aren't right with God. And you want to know something? Sometimes that's why you fail to invest in people, because you do not like being hurt. Well, if I give my best to that, that guy that just got saved, he'll probably just, he'll just waste away anyway. He won't do it. He'll never come to church. I've been over there at least twice. I'm tired of it. I can't handle this rejection. I can't deal with this disappointment. I led him to the Lord. I thought for sure he was serious and sincere and genuine, but boy, obviously I was wrong. Are you kidding me? You know, I mean, we, we get, we take it personal. Every little thing. Whether you're a pastor, whether you're the people going out trying to help people like that, you better understand you're going to have some of those times when people don't respond to you. You may have more than you wish. But you can't quit on them. Jesus didn't quit on you. <clears throat> 
It's going to be work. It's going to take time. But there's a blessing here. There's reward because somebody ultimately will be here because of you. Somebody's going to be established. Somebody's going to get strengthened. You stay at it. You give your best. You try to raise up children in the Lord and disciple people. There'll be others that you can look back on and say, they're here because of me. Thank God He gave me the strength and the stamina to not quit and keep going. God bless. This is such a blessing to watch this guy now. He's getting married to that girl and their family's growing in the Lord and they're serving Jesus Christ. And oh my, my, you just can't believe how exciting this is. But you got to get there. How long does it take to raise a baby before they start producing fruit? We expect new converts to produce fruit the following week. Or we just want to throw them away. Start on a new one. This one's just not going to produce. Be careful. That's not what he told Peter to do, and that's not what we're to do as believers. The Apostle Paul, he confirms that elders or pastors of the church were to take the oversight, feed the flock as well. Paul says in Acts 20, 28, uh, uh, the writer there, I mean, Luke says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to the all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Right off the bat, Peter's told to feed the lambs, the babies. That's the first thing. See, listen, nobody requires the baby to come to the food. Nobody requires the baby to come to the food. Instead, they take the food to the baby. <clears throat> He's told to feed the weak and the weary as well as the strong and the grounded. See, nobody, nobody feeds a sick member of the family the same way and with the same type of food that they do the well, the strong, and the working members of the family. You don't do that. Someone's sick enough, you don't feed them the same thing that you feed the, the ones that are well. You're going to have to break it down a little bit. You're going to have to give them some broth. Can't take that meat anymore. They're sick. They're weary. They're tired. They're worn out. <clears throat> the very foundation of raising a very strong, faithful Christian is to begin when they are first saved. First saved. And just as parents begin raising their little baby when it's born to become a well-adjusted adult, to fit in and be a productive citizen in society, we need to begin with our spiritual babies when they're first born again. It's got to start early. Let's talk about the natural way you feed a baby. Again, there's a number of similarities between you know, raising a spiritual baby and a physical baby. Very many. Very many. And the procedures, as we're going to see, are very similar too. First of all, if you take a little baby, <clears throat> you're going to take the milk to the baby, right? Now, some of you, we have a lot of little babies in our church. You know, they're popping up everywhere. And uh, we're still trying to figure out how that happens. But anyway, here they are now. They're with us. And the natural way of feeding a baby is to take milk to the baby. Now, again, sometimes if we're not careful, you take the milk to the baby. Uh, I don't want to get into it right now. But the fact is, is that the love, the um, compassion, the tenderness, the warmth that a mama has or that a, 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 a dad has for the child is just as important as the milk itself. We forget about that. Here's your milk. Drink it. 
That, that's not going to produce what you want. Okay, you know, you know what I'm saying. And, and that's, that's, you know, so it's not just the milk itself that's important. It's the way it's delivered. With love and compassion and with tenderness and care. And again, if you want a child to grow emotionally and to truly develop the way a baby ought to develop, you need the proper diet, but you also need to share it in the proper way. Not only take the milk to the baby, but you have to personally hand feed the baby at one point. You know, the baby gets a little older and, you know, you're not just, you know, feeding with a bottle anymore or whatever. And you're, you know, now you're personally hand feeding the baby. Um, it begins to wean off of milk a little bit. Next thing you know, you give them a little bit of oatmeal or something. I like how the doctors are today. Don't give them anything solid till they're at least six months or a year. Whatever. But anyway, you know, it's, it's, really, it's really affected us negatively. You know what I'm saying? It's really, it's really hurting us. But, but nonetheless, um, I'm just, you know how it is. Can I just give you a piece of advice, moms? You're probably right more than you're wrong. You're probably right. You know, Really. Do you know that children are amazingly resilient? There's very little you can do to damage them unless you drop them on their head. And then some of them might be better off in the long run. But we're going to personally feed this baby now. They're, they're weaning off of milk and, and we're going to add to that milk even if we have to. And, and before long, you're going to be spoon feeding that baby. And that's always fun, isn't it? It's exciting. You know, and you get the little spoon, you pretend to be a little airplane, and you do all those neat things, you know, that you do. And, and you start, you know, opening your mouth, trying to get them to open their mouth, and you do crazy stuff. You know what I mean? And, and it's fun, you know, but you personally spoon feed. I mean, you've already had to feed them with a bottle. You've already had to hold them in your arms. You've had to do all of that. But now you're, you're getting to the point where they can sit up on their own a little bit, and, and you're starting to, you know, or maybe they can't. You're still holding them, and you're trying to spoon feed them a little bit, get a little bit of heaviness in them so they sleep through the night, and all that good stuff. And then finally, you've got to teach that baby how to feed itself. Okay, you know, you, you've used the bottle and the milk and, and, and now you're, you're, you're taking that milk to the baby. But now you personally hand feed the baby. There comes a point where you have to teach the baby to feed itself. Again, several months have gone by. The baby's developed and now it's to a point where it's able to literally feed itself. I mean, when this happens, the baby is pretty much tied into a seat. You, you tie it in a seat. So that it can't get out. Alright? You set it in a seat. We call them high chairs. They call them electric chairs. And you set them in there and you strap them down like they're getting ready to fly into outer space so they can't move. Take all the G-forces. And we tie them into a chair. And then, then, the fun begins. Because then we take that food and we put that bowl in front of them and we give them that spoon. It's a messy job, but somebody has to do it. And usually it's mom or dad and, they've, you know, here they are, they're feeding themselves and they miss their mouth more than they hit. Bib after bib, mess after mess. This goes on for weeks. Seems like years. And then it's completed. Now he can feed himself, herself. And they graduate to eating with the rest of the family under close supervision. 
Now, that's how it really works, doesn't it? It's kind of, kind of I mean, a little bit simple, oversimplification, but let, let's consider the unnatural way now. Um, a little baby's brought home from the hospital and placed in their, their bed. We lay the baby in the bed. All the family gathers around. I mean, they're all there, and they officially welcome Junior to the family. Grandma, Grandpa, Mom, Dad, brothers and sisters. I mean, they all shouted unison, Welcome to the family. We're so glad to have you. We've been praying for you. And if you're really serious about being part of this family, we want you to know that Mother, she she puts the food on the table every morning, every noon, every night. And if you really want to succeed and be part of this family, well, when she puts the food on the table... You come and get it. Okay? Now, allow me to ask you a very deep theological question. How many of those little babies would survive? None of them. That's correct. Let me ask you another deep theological question. Would the families of the babies who died justify the loss of those babies by blaming it on the days and the times in which we live? I mean, when they go around saying, well, have you ever seen so many sick and dying babies as there are being born in these last days? It's amazing. I just can't believe it. These babies who are born in these last days, they, they don't last. They just kick off on you. They just quit on you. You think they'd say that? I don't think so either. Do you think that they would blame the days in which they live, the days in which those babies were born, or do you think they would go back to following the principles that produced good, healthy, strong babies? I think they would go back and start doing what worked in the past. The Bible teaches us that people are to be saved. Then they're to be baptized. Then they're to join the church. And when God gives a spiritual baby to a local church family, the whole family generally gathers around, shakes the new convert's hand. And, of course, as they pass by, they say, Welcome to the church family. We love you. We've been praying for you. We have a good pastor who really puts good spiritual food on our spiritual table every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. If you really are serious about wanting to be a member of this family, this church family, well, when he puts that food on the table, you come and get it. Isn't that what we do? Let's just be honest. You want to grow? You want to be everything God wants you to be? You want to be a valuable asset in the church? You want to grow in Jesus Christ? You really want to fit in this family? Then every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you be here. You smile when you say it. Be here. God bless you. We love you. And then we wonder, 
why they're dying. They're dying. I can almost hear an echo in the corner of the church, just a faint voice saying, boy, babies that are born in these last days, they just die on you. I don't know what's wrong with these babies these days. It must be the times we live in. Is it really the times we live in? Or have we abandoned the commission that God has given to each and every one of us? They're babies. Telling them how much we love them will never get them fed. Throwing the Bible in front of them going, read it. It's not enough. If we're going to see fruit that remains, then we're going to have to start treating the babies in Christ the way we treat the babies in our homes. We're going to have to go back to taking the milk to the baby. That means we might have to actually go to their house and do a Bible study with them on what it means to be saved. I mean, oh, me? Did you lead them to the Lord? Mama? Daddy? Me? Yeah. You. See, the pastoral commission, although it was given directly to preachers, I understand that, was passed to every member. We are all ministers. And although you may not pastor a church, God wants you to effectively pastor a person. He wants you and I to disciple people. And that is raising babies. Feed my lambs. We're going to have to take the milk to them. And then eventually, as we've done that a while, we're going to have to personally begin to spoon feed them. We may even have to literally go get them and bring them to the table. I'd have to waste my time. I don't have gas money. I don't have time for that. You know what? I got a feeling that if we made God, His Word, and His work a priority in our life, that He would give us the tools we need to get the job done. That includes gas money. I'm just convinced of it. Do you know why so many Christians are broke today? Because they're not obedient in giving already. Amen, I don't have enough to give. You know what you are? Rebellious and disobedient. And you know why God's not blessing the church today when it comes to converts? Because we're not obedient. We're not feeding them. We're not bringing them to the table. We're not giving them the milk. We're waiting on them to come to the house of God and get fed like we do. But we're grown-ups. They're babies. I would never have a baby be responsible for feeding itself. And neither would you. But when it comes to these babies, if we're not careful, we are quick to let them on their own, turn them loose on their own, and then say... It's just a sign of the times. Nobody really 
wants the Lord anymore. It was just a shallow profession. I'm not convinced of that. I'm convinced that we must take the milk to the baby. We must personally hand feed that child. And then, after all that's happened, that may be months, then we need to teach that baby to feed itself. We call it, and so does the Word of God in a sense, discipleship. It's something that must take place. Something must happen. And by the way, it doesn't matter how old you are. You can effectively feed babies. You're never too old to feed a baby. You know, some of the best workers we have in our nursery are probably over the age of 60. Best workers in our nursery. Why? They have experience. They have compassion. They have love. They care for children. And you know what? That job's important to them. It's a way they can serve Jesus Christ. And they say, I can't wait. I think of Mrs. Penny. Mrs. Harris. I think of even my mom. I think of some of them ladies and, and Mrs. Wilson. I think of ladies that work every week in that nursery. They take the time. And they're some of the best workers we've got. Their age doesn't keep them from being effective. And you know what? Neither does yours have to. Amen. Young or old, we can be used by God to feed His lambs. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. The Lord's saying, Do you love me tonight? You really love me. And feed my lambs. Because it won't be long, you'll be gone anyway. You don't feed some of them babies. My word won't continue. My legacy won't last. Feed my lambs so the next generation has the gospel, even as yours did. Feed my lambs. Father, we come to you. Lord, we thank you again for all you do for us.